I always say I want to do Wheel of Fortune or Family Feud. Ooh, Wheel of Fortune. I don't know how good I'd be at Wheel of Fortune. I think I'm I feel like I'm good at it when I'm watching it, but if I was there, like under pressure, I would maybe choke a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like pre the pressure of a game show would just like make me lose so fast. Yeah. Um, I feel like I don't want to be on national television. That's, <laughs> That's fair. It's, uh... We'll buy Lauren a lottery ticket, then she doesn't have to be on TV. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. And I'm Lauren Del Cello, Managing Editor for Water Quality Products. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we'll provide a brief update on the progress of the lead and copper rule revision, which is now undergoing community roundtables to gather feedback. We'll also explore current water scarcity issues in the U.S., including Lake Mead's declining water levels and the impact of water scarcity on the entire cycle, ranging from surface water to groundwater. Finally, our interview this month is with Scott Slater, CEO of Katie's Inc., a talk with I talked with him about water scarcity and how it affects the economy, relates to water equity, and more. But before that, Bob, do you want to give us an update on the lead and copper rule revisions? Yeah, so the Environmental Protection Agency is hosting some roundtables on the lead and copper rule. Uh, we've been providing updates on the U.S. EPA lead and copper rule revision over the process or, or, and the, its process over the past couple of episodes. So I wanted to talk a little bit about where things stand right now. The EPA announced 10 communities that have been selected for virtual roundtable discussions on the lead and copper rule revisions. The roundtables are aimed to, at fostering a dialogue on the experiences of communities that are affected by lead in drinking water as the agency reviews the LCR to ensure that it supports EPA's priorities. The roundtables kicked off on June 3rd with Pittsburgh, and additional roundtable discussions are bringing together national stakeholders such as drinking water utilities, environmental organizations, consumer associations, and they're also doing a set of roundtables specifically for tribes and tribal communities. What we're recognizing here is that there is a real big effort being put into getting as many perspectives as possible on this rule to make it as good as it can be when it does get implemented. We've talked about the challenges that utilities will have in terms of financing a lot of the regulatory aspects of this. We've also talked about the importance of all of this from the consumer perspective of ensuring that water is very safe. I've not set in on any of these sessions so far, so I don't really know a lot of what's being discussed at the moment, but I'm looking forward to digging into it here uh, in the next couple of weeks and whatnot. And then also, of course, just reading the, the final rule that comes down from EPA when they've included all that information. Um, so, Bob, I just want to ask, uh, if you have any kind of update or knowledge of what sort of timeline we're looking at for these uh, stakeholder roundtables and, and then next steps beyond that. Yeah, so it looks like this June 3rd timing and the 10 roundtables are aimed at happening for the first half of June. I believe when the decision from the Biden administration to delay things was made that June 17th was a date that they were targeting to have a clear vision of what they were going to do and then having an effective date in December. Whether that rem remains intact, I'm not entirely sure. The idea 
I, I think it's probably pretty possible that December would be the effective date, but then there's also a compliance date that is in 2024. So while it may be effective in December, there's time for utilities to kind of catch up to things over the course of the next two to three years as well. Interesting. I'm very, very curious, as I'm sure many of our listeners are, to see what kind of level of changes come out of these roundtables and uh, subsequent conversations with stakeholders involved as well. Yeah, I think one of the interesting parts of it is the communications aspect. I've seen, I obviously on Twitter, I follow a lot of the communications folks because they that's the platform that they're really comfortable with. So I see some of their commentary and whatnot on it, and I think that that's a really interesting point because there is a large portion of the rule, at least the rule that was published in January, that focuses specifically on public outreach and what's required of a utility in terms of educating the public and in terms of telling them about like when and where they're doing things, what the lead levels are, providing materials on lead uh, on lead in bodies and what that causes in terms of side effects to human beings and all that kind of a thing. So. I think that that's another, it's an interesting element that that's being discussed in more detail as well, in addition to, like, should we be lowering this level even further than what was originally published? Well, we'll no doubt be continuing this conversation throughout the next few months as well, but as this is our June episode and the start of the summer season, we've got a a robust conversation on water scarcity to dig into as well. So Katie, if you want to kick us off on that topic. Yeah, of course. So as much of the Western U.S. is facing severe drought, water scarcity concerns are increasingly prevalent. Lake Mead is expected to reach the lowest water level it has been since it began filling during construction of the Hoover Dam, reported CNN, according to a Bureau of Reclamation spokeswoman. As of the time we're recording this episode, Lake Mead is projected to hit an elevation of 1,071 on June 10th, matching the previous lowest elevation on record since 1930s. Officials expect the lake levels to continue to decline through November 2021 and impact water access to Western states that utilize the Colorado River throughout the coming year. So of course, with the water scarcity concerns and the drought that you know much of the West is in, especially in California, this also from the stormwater erosion control side, um, increases the chances for wildfires and a lot of erosion control concerns too. So we will be keeping a close eye on that. I was um, doing some um, reading up on last year's wildfire season because um, it was historic as well. Um, and it looks like right now, um, a the properties that were burned last year, right now, a little over 90% that were enrolled in the state's um, debris removal program have been worked on, um, but they still have a lot of recovering to do. And the drought this year is escalating the fire season to maybe be a little earlier. So of course, we'll be keeping an eye on that um, as things progress too. I think I read somewhere in the ballpark of 44 California counties are currently under um, severe drought advisory warnings. So uh, with wildfire season being particularly bad last year as well, that's certainly something we'll be keeping an eye on from um, all aspects that we cover as well. But back to Lake Mead, those numbers are startling, scary concerning. Um, Wanted to get, Bob, your thoughts on when we actually visited Lake Mead three years ago and were able to talk with someone from the Bureau of Reclamation, and you were kind of able to pick their brain about what the water situation was like then versus now, I suppose. Yeah, and so when we visited, I believe that was 2018, when 
uh, AWWA Ace was in uh, in Las Vegas, so we made a trip out to go and chat with the Bureau of Reclamation, got some footage and stuff like that, and we made a video about specifically about Lake Mead and Lake Powell and how they are used to indicate drought or understand the severity of drought. Um, so we'll link that in the in the description in the show notes for this episode so that people can watch that because it is really informative. But at the time there was a there was a drought but it, the, the severity of that drought was not so much that they declared a like major emergency or anything like that things are different now and it appears to be more in the realm of like this is becoming a more of a major emergency because while they were low then they did kind of resurge in 2019 with their water levels from my understanding but the fact that it's gone even further down now indicates a, a really really rough drought for the for this year and i i think i agree with you i you said the the counties for california there i saw a map the other day of even just the western states and showing how um how affected by drought all the states like basically west of the rockies are affected by this and it's actually it was a tremendous visual aid in understanding just how widespread the drought is not just necessarily its severity yeah, that's an interesting point as well, um, the widespread access, but uh, a startling point also is this, this is only June right now, you know, we're at the, we're at the beginning of the dry season, so no doubt we'll continue chatting about this. Um, I wanted to bring up one article that I saw from the end user standpoint that kind of left an impression on me. So from an end user perspective, water access issues brought on by water scarcity obviously have huge implications as Katie's interview with Scott Slater is going to dig on some of those access equity issues. But I'll briefly point to an article from a North Dakota local news source that interviewed North Dakota well drillers and found that some water willers water well dr drillers were even booked solid for two years in advance. And agricultural water usage, which we didn't touch on earlier, but that plays a huge role in this as well. Part of the Colorado River Basin water usage system. So tying back to SWS briefly as well, according to the article, a majority of North Dakota cattle producers rely on dugouts or stock dams for their cattle's drinking water. But those sources rely on surface water runoff, stormwater runoff, which North Dakota has very little over the past year and a half. So just wanted to briefly, before we dig into today's interview as well, kind of open up the floor to you guys for any thoughts you might want to share on the equity scarcity relationship, Bob. Yeah, the agricultural thing is huge. I know that especially in Arizona, part of like, there's a lot of these articles that I've seen in New York Times, Washington Post about kind of the, the coming water wars, so to speak, right? And in Arizona, especially, there's a lot of, a lot of the issue stems from First of all, it's an arid state, so getting water and transporting it to where it needs to be to the right communities is already a challenge in its own right. But the problem, too, is that groundwater aquifers are being dried up from agricultural use, and so it's causing problems for people who rely on well water because that groundwater aquifer was charging their well water, and then if the agricultural user is using so much of it because they need to do their work, it's taking away water from someone else. And this is where it gets into that whole like waters of the US and rights to water, who owns what water, all that kind of a thing too. And that that's a whole nother conversation that we probably should 
uh, bring back up on the podcast. I know we talked about it uh, a while back, but it sounds like the um, Michael Regan at, at EPA and um, and President Biden are looking to change the way that that would work and trying to create a better framework for it. Even Radhika Fox mentioned it in her hearing for her nomination for the EPA. So I think that's something that we should definitely address later down the line, because I think that ties really, really directly into a lot of these facets of water scarcity with agricultural use versus residential use versus industrial use and all that. And in my, in my interview with Scott, he actually touched quite a bit on the agricultural water usage and how that impacts everything too. So it was just a reminder that, you know, the water cycle affects so many things that you might not think are connected. It was just a, a good reminder that, you know, water scarcity relates to water equity relates to, you know, all different aspects of the industry. So, but yeah, he, he touches on that. So um, timely for sure. Yeah. I mean, as an, as an individual or a community what do you do? What kind of position are you in if the agricultural water users of your area, which are, you know, also obviously important water users as well, are dominating the water cycle or the groundwater table, uh, drying up your wells? How do you how do you approach that? How do you navigate that? Who do you turn to for help? Um, important questions. But now I'm rather excited to dig into Scott's interview since it sounds like he's an expert on a lot of these points and can provide some enlightening perspective to our listeners. Yes, yeah, so we can uh, go ahead and share an interview now. Like I mentioned earlier, I talked with Scott Slater, CEO of KD's Inc. Uh, we talked about water scarcity challenges, solutions, the economic impact, how it relates to water equity, and a lot more. So without further ado, here is that interview. Hi everyone, I am here with Scott Slater, CEO of KD's Inc. And today we are going to talk about water scarcity. So Scott, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Glad to yeah. be here. Yeah, I um, our conversation kind of comes up just uh, today. Actually, I was talking with the other host of the podcast about Lake Mead's water levels and how they're expected to go you know, to some historic low level. So it's a timely conversation, but just to kind of get us started, can you just talk about some of the biggest challenges in water scarcity and, and what we're facing right now? Sure. The, uh, I, I guess the, the implication for scarcity means there's not enough to go around. So, um, and I suppose there's, there are really uh, two components as we think about that. So in, in the Western United States, uh, we're for the most part, um, living in pretty disparate uh, at climate and uh, and the geography is is not uniform. We've got the Rocky Mountains and in uh, California, we have these the uh, these Sierras and very different uh, uh, geography. Um, in the lower basin that you're describing, the lower Colorado River system has uh, largely had about the same quantity of water and in it for a very long time. Although in the in the beginning, its, its measurements were probably not uh, as accurate as what we have today, and the historical gauges were uh, which ultimately led to the demand side of the, the equation. How much water do we have, and then how much can we give away uh, under various rights? Those gauges we're probably off by maybe as much as a million acre feet. So that's a pretty substantial quantity, maybe 10 or 15% of the total water in the Colorado River system was overestimated. And, and so as we think about it, really the two components to scarcity are on one hand, 
the supply side and then secondly in the demand side. So out of the box, the Colorado River was overestimated in terms of supply. And then you uh, lay over that the impacts of climate change. And what we're seeing is there's a shift, not necessarily a reduction in precipitation, but maybe a difference in when it occurs and how it occurs. So the concentration of the wetness, how long the period is, and that drives decisions about how much we can store in certain circumstances, right? And how much is available for, for storage, how much has to be released for flood control purposes. So uh, as we think about it, there have been challenges on the supply side. And then on top of those challenges on the supply side, there's been a shift in values, which um, impacts how we think about how much water is available. And I think particularly in California, if you look at it, there has been for at least now 50 years, an effort, um, uh, a socially backed effort to try to claw back water away from consumptive users being municipalities, urban uses and agriculture and to leave it where it sits so that it can serve in habitat needs, in watershed needs, fisheries, flora, fauna. And we, we mostly think about that uh, as, a, uh, as a demand piece, but really it's, it's keeping the, the same quantity of water that might've been pulled and taken for consumptive use. It's keeping that in the, in the river. And now that water is designated just for in, what we'd call in-stream uses. So less water is available, that there is a change in when it's available. And, uh, and we, so on, that's on the, the, the first piece of it. And demand, while you might say that we've got pretty aggressive demand management in place, demand on a whole is constant and increasing. So how can that be? Well, we would say like a, a city of Los Angeles, urban Southern California has done a dramatic had uh, uh, a dramatic improvement in the amount of water each person uses on a per capita basis. The overall demand that's required to meet people's needs is reduced, but yet we have more people. And, and um, we had shifts in our agricultural patterns in terms of how water is being used and how often. And a good example of that would be um, the, the shift from row crops to high value uh, uh, orchards, nuts, uh, pistachios, almonds, walnuts, those are citrus. Those are, those are constant demand things as opposed to seasonal cropping and farming. So in short, there, it's a dynamic situation, a lot going on. Um, we have been successful in using less water to meet our needs, but yet there's emerging greater demands in a time where there's increased uh, or decreased supply. Okay. And my next question is going to be kind of factors that play into this, but I think you kind of explained that, but are there any other factors that go into water security right now, aside from, you know, the supply and demand of things? Yeah, I, I, I would say, um, I, I would say indeed there are, there 
So we have the supply and demand, and then we have what I would call the modern challenge of, of infrastructure. And it, it used to be in the last century that we would come up with a plan or design, somebody put it on a board and then you'd build it or implement it, right? And, and so that, uh, the availability to, to, or the possibility, I'd say to do that uh, started to really wane in the last part of the last century, really since 1970 with the adoption nationally of the National Environmental Policy Act and then California, something called CEQA, which is the California Environmental Equality Act. Um, those, uh, the, the, the emergence of the environmental community and a more stringent permitting process associated with infrastructure has made it much more difficult. And I would say in, in, in impossible in some places to do infrastructure projects. So we don't see any more, we're not going to see, in my opinion, um, it will be a rare incident where we have surface storage and no one's ever going to build a lake meet again. There's pressure against San Francisco to pull down the Hetch Hetchy. Um, there's trouble on the Klamath. You know, anywhere that there's a, a surface body, there's pressure against that. And, and that, that infrastructure is important for storage. There's also infrastructure issues related to pipelines. People are not able to go into the environment and design permit and actually build um, different or more pipes or plumbing. So that aspect has become a real constraint. So the probably the biggest uh, casualty of all of that has been the state water project in California. This year, it's going to deliver 5% of its contractual entitlement. The CVP, the Central Valley Project is in a comparable place. It's going to deliver actually zero of its entitlement. And the physical ability to repair and, and the system and get back to uh, expected deliveries, just not possible. And, and then secondly, you have to appreciate, you, you just can't see it from the prospect, oh, well, it's a regulatory environment that's more difficult. There is abs absolutely mobilized opposition to that. And that mobilized opposition takes the form of NGOs, which really make good sport of trying to harpoon these projects and to keep them from going forward. And the, and the, the environmental community is not monolithic, to be sure. And there are, there's a segment of them that are interested in really truly protecting the environment in place. But there's also, to be honest, there's a very clear segment, well-funded portion of that group that sees the nexus between water and what's done with it, the development aspect, and wants to deny or prevent essential infrastructure. Why? Because it, by denying that essential infrastructure, you impede growth, more houses, more industrial development, more greenfield development. And from a social context, they would rather have the development occur in inner city and not supported by uh, infrastructure to suburbia. So that has been a pretty important element in addition to those more obvious supply and demand points. It's just much more difficult to do something given those external externalities. Okay, and that was also something that I was gonna ask about is how does water scarcity affect the economy and maybe even some of these developments that you were just referencing? Well, I, th I think we've, we've long known 
right? There's a great quote. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't think of the exact person. There was a judge who once said, well, the value of land without water is zero. And, and you know, as I think about it, and when I teach I, and, and students want to talk about, well, the private sector's out there making products. I just try to imagine with water, just try, or ag's using too much, or a cow is using too much. Just try to think of something that you have available around you that didn't require water in the development of that. It's water finds its way into every product that is that we see on the face of the earth, and and so as scarcity and and even more challenging than than the scarcity is the absence of reliability the wild fluctuations from year to year you could have a smaller amount of supply if you knew you had it every year and it was predictable that would be better than having a system in which you have it's the roulette wheel hmm what do we have today right don't know and and so um, as we move forward, trying to address that, uh, what our current governor now calls resiliency, water supply resiliency becomes important. You have to have uh, a portfolio of approaches. Y you cannot, in most of the Western states now, you cannot have a certain size development unless you can prove the reliability of your water for somewhere over between 20 and 99 years. You have to be able to show that that water supply is there. Um, and that would pertain to residences. It pertains to, to businesses. That's part of the, the, the platform. And then when, when water as a commodity is evaluated into the context of what you're doing, not every crop can afford the increase in prices. So farming, some farm, farming gets uh, priced out. So uh, somebody who's perhaps in onions, uh, that's a, that would be a great example, onions or carrots, cannot afford because the margin, the utility of the land for that purpose doesn't compare with say pistachios or, or almonds. You're, you're really in a quantum uh, difference in terms of the economics of that. So the scarcity and the price do affect crop choices. They affect what people are going to do with the water. And that's, that's businesses, it's agriculture, uh, and it's pretty much across the board, including where your rate payer sitting in your house, you got a yard, you have a garden, you have whatever it is you're doing, and you know, you're noticing that your rates are going up. And my, um, my favorite problem to present to, in law school class is something I'll call the conservation conundrum. And it's this, this amazing thing where, maybe it's not so amazing, but the, the way that water infrastructure developed in the United States is, it's principally we paid for on a pay-go basis, which means there's some embedded cost associated with infrastructure and it is repaid off of volumetric sales. So that means if I'm the, I use an example of where I'm sitting today, which is Santa Barbara. So Santa Barbara has a certain number of fixed costs. And in order for them to uh, cover that, their commodity price for the water has to be sufficient in the number of sales to pay for those fixed costs. 
And when I'm in a condition of scarcity, what happens? I'm selling less water. So the, the, the income stream that I'm anticipating doesn't arise. So what do I have to do? For each drop I'm conserving, the water rate needs to, to go up <laughs> in order to cover those fixed costs. So now I'm the city council person in the period of drought, and I get to say to my constituents, ah, job well done. You saved a third uh, of our, your total water demands and your bill's going up 30%. So um, there's a direct relationship. The absence of reliability and the absence of supply is a billion dollar problem, multi-billion dollar problem in California alone. Yeah, and I also was going to touch on, you know, when people think of water scarcity, they start to think about, you know, clean, usable and, and drinking water and how that might relate to water equity. So how does water scarcity affect water equity? Well, um, so I, I would start, that was a great question and, a, and I would segue from my last answer. So there's, there's a notion that, uh, or a conflation, I would say, the, uh, between efficient use and rationing. Both, both are a form of conservation and both are required. Where we have, where the original impetus was or pressure was in the West was to be much more efficient in our use and distribution of water so that you could accomplish the same end with less water. A uh, hundred years ago, we had farmers who were flood irrigating now and and we went you know progressively to improved efficiency so you actually have something called spot spitters now with uh probes in the ground managing and monitoring the moisture in the soil and then and then generating the water they've become maybe not 100 percent efficient but like 90 percent efficient and you compare that to uh, a place like china um, which operates at like 35 to 40% irrigation efficiency. We are really efficient. We, in, in your households now, we have crossed the Rubicon really where you have low flow toilets, uh, uh, shower heads, uh, drought resistant landscaping. There are many things that we've done to become more efficient. And that is a form of conservation. What, what we've managed to do though, while we're becoming more efficient, while we're being uh, really ingenious in, in terms of our ingenuity is, is almost boundless in terms of how we can become more efficient and how we use water. On, on the other side of that though, there's been the notion for the reasons that I described earlier about resistance to too much water. So the resistance to too much water says, well, you should deal with shortage by, by rationing. So if there's, we don't wanna make an investment in being resilient. And when we don't make the investment in being resilient, how we will address shortage in our community is we'll tell everybody to ration. And to bring this back to your question, the communities that are hurt worse by that are the disadvantaged communities. Because if you extrapolate, um, I just use my mom before she died. She, she would have that same, she would call me up and she'd say, how is it possible that I'm using 50% of the water that I normally use and my rates are going up? 
And when you only have so much of a, uh, your disposable income uh, available and you're making choices between what you can afford, a 50% spike or a 30% spike in your water bill really hurts. So that's, that, that's one component. The second component is that we, we do have need, right? We have need for water on a reliable, sustainable basis in communities that don't have access to it. And, and a part of that problem is location, location, location. Uh, there, there are people, there, I, I would say we recognize that there's a human right to water and that water has a critical importance in all lives. And yet, if I move to the middle of the Sahara Desert and I want to build a house, it doesn't mean that the world owes you the plumbing to be able to, to survive in that environment. And, and we do have circumstances in which locations have risen up for a variety of social reasons and uh, too lengthy to get into. And there's probably no single reason why that happens, but the pure remoteness of, of where that those people are has created a challenge for us to figure out how to get them water. And in those unfortunate circumstances where people haven't been as strong of stewards as you'd want them to be, they've contaminated what they've had and now they're left with large problems, cleanup problems, uh, to uh, typically the result of careless industry uh, and or or uh, ignorant industry. You know, there there are some sometimes. I mean, now we have this this uh, this uh, contamination called PFAS, and and we didn't really know what the prospects were for that, and it was sort of a, a hidden thing that was going on. And now uh, now we've removed large quantities of water from direct potable use without extensive treatment. And, and that unfairly or probably disproportionately impacts communities, both that are isolated and rural and secondly, in inner city. And it becomes even worse for them because they're sole sourced. And, and so without uh, a portfolio or the ability to raise capital, they don't have the rate base. There's an unfairness component and and uh, and that can be both supply and and quality. And the last point I would I would make is sort of maybe another uh, nail to put into this: the consequence of our policy to make sure that we have what I would call quote just enough water unquote and and living back and forth on the rationing is. Uh, you know, the other, one of the other things our, our governor said is, is we need to have, and I think it's been acknowledged in California forever, is the inadequacy of our available housing. And it's very convenient for people who have all they want, who, who have a nice house, uh, to, to be trying to oppose an infrastructure project that would benefit somebody and provide the water, which is the predicate to new housing. And I don't think you need to look further than, than really. You can look anywhere in California, you see this problem. There, there, there needs to be more housing. Our governor is suing now 
the city of Huntington Beach over their failure to provide a fair share of housing. And we see it everywhere. There are really beautiful communities that don't want to make the housing available. And one of the principal reasons that's used to deny that, that service is access to water. And uh, it's, it's tragic. It truly is. Yeah. And kind of looking a little bit ahead to the future, we've, you know, heard of these kind of solutions coming along, whether it's, you know, use of groundwater or aquifer recharging or rain barrels to kind of look at water reuse, you know, where do you see some of those going and how have they helped so far? Well, I, th I look, I think if you were going to point to something that, that uh, we, we've done a lot with and, um, and made tremendous progress and it, and we're going to have to master it even even more is uh, is aquifer storage so for all the reasons i've said we're never going to see in principally disruption on surface habitat and stream uses you're not going to see any significant surface water reservoirs built in this state ever in california and and i just don't see it the, the opposition is uh, is just fierce so from a utility standpoint, one of the things that we have been successful at is aquifer storage. And that means, uh, I, I think, taking a liability and turning it into something positive. And the liability really is the notion that we, in most cases, we've overused an aquifer system. We've, we've taken more out than nature is putting in. And we may have crossed over the optimal zone. You know, there's always a place, there's always a statement that the hydrogeologist says, you know, a full glass can't take water, right? So, and when you think about the groundwater basins as a storage vessel, that, that storage vessel um, gains capacity by taking water out. So if you look around the West, there are many groundwater basins which have excess storage capacity beyond what, what the annual need is. And, and large quantities of capacity and storage is possible. And, and I would point to one, which is a great example. In the Inland Empire right now of Southern California, so roughly 30 miles east of Los Angeles is a, an area called the Chino Basin. And the Chino Basin is a fully court adjudicated groundwater basin and over the last 10 years, actually the last 15 years, they've been able to uh, stock away or, or put away 600,000 acre feet of water and it's being held in, in, in storage. That is water resiliency. They don't need to ration. Now, someone may tell them they have to ration or to be a good sport and take it for the team while everybody else is suffering, that you should take a little bit of a shortage, but there's no shortage that anybody who's reliant on the, the Chino Basin is their backbone supply, uh, would have to take at any time soon. And, and, and the overlay of that, which I, I believe there's gonna be some articles written about it later this month, is it, it's the home, it's a home for many disadvantaged communities. And they're not gonna have to ration because they're going to be able to rely upon that groundwater supply to offset whatever shortages there will be in the surface water system because of the shortages that we began this, you know, what's gonna happen on the Colorado River. Um, so I, I think aquifer storage, we're doing it in Arizona, we're doing it throughout California, we're doing it in Texas, we're doing it in Florida. Uh, it's, it's really, 
properly managed. Now there are constraints to that. That's a great thing to do. Okay. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and thank you for sharing all of your insight with me today. I really appreciate it. And I, um, I know our audience will, will learn a lot from it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you again for all your time. I appreciate it. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. All right. Thank you, Kate. for the interview, Scott. I really appreciate you sharing all that insight. I know I learned a lot and I'm sure our audience will too. So yeah, thank you so much. Before we wrap up this episode, we do have some housekeeping. So Lauren, I will turn it to you. Wonderful, Katie. Thank you so much. So I'll just reiterate what I said uh, last episode that we recorded in that I am excited to see you and I am hopping back on planes. Hope safely and well in the foreseeable future. So if you're heading out to Texas Water Quality Association Convention in San Antonio in July or the National Water Quality Association Convention in Vegas in July, um, please send me a note at wqpeditor at sgcmail.com and I would love to connect. Similarly, myself and Katie, and I think some of our other members, well, several other members of our team are going to be part of our water pavilion, the Scranton Gillette Communications Water Group, including Water Waste Digest and Stormwater Solutions, are bringing this water pavilion to the Utility Expo September 28th to 30th. On, at the Kentucky Exposition Center in Louisville, Kentucky. You can register for, for the event today at sgcwaterpavilion.com. Also, I wanted to note because it's timely and fits with the theme of this month's episode that we are partnering with Global Waterworks on a webinar series discussing water reuse, which will happen later this fall. So stay tuned for details. We'll share registration links when they become available, but it just seems so perfect with this theme to, to let you guys know that that's something that's in the hopper for us right now. And on the stormwater side, our nominations for top projects are open. If you worked on an innovative project recently, please submit it at bit.ly slash SWS top projects 2021. The deadline for submissions is July 30th. So don't wait, go ahead and submit today. And lastly, um, in anticipation of this hurricane season, which started a couple weeks ago, SWS has made a Hurricane Hub page full of the latest news and industry impacts. Um, go ahead and visit the page at bit.ly slash SWS Hurricane Hub. And finally, don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone.